And, and Kip is the your your co-founder, right? Yeah. Our, our co-flounders. <laughs> of course you are. Playful, playful but purposeful, um, which are two other things to keep in mind, I think, for 22nd century. Um, one without the other is kind of boring. Duncan Barry is a serial social entrepreneur or adventure capitalist. He's spent the last 30 years leading values-based businesses and nonprofit organizations. He's founded five successful companies and two nonprofits located on three continents. His most recent venture is Fish People, a wholesale and retail fish company built on principles of sustainability and radical transparency. He and his team aim to use customer pull and demand to transform the unsustainable global fishery industry. I first met Duncan about 15 years ago when he was CEO of The Green Source, the first mass channel organic cotton t-shirt supplier in the world. Since that time, we've run the Grand Canyon, hiked Oregon's wild coastline, and swam with wild salmons in small icy cold coastal streams. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Very pleased to be here. Yeah. So, um, for our listeners who may not know you uh, that well, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a background uh, on what you've done as a entrepreneur and particularly how you've used business as a, a device to, to bring social and environmental uh, sanity to the world? Mm. Well, in order to do so, I think I'd, I'd give you a little bit of context from my family of origin, which I think is uh, where we all stem from, and uh, I was raised in a, um, a family of, of artists, which gave me an early tolerance, I think, for risk, which I think is one of the most important things about being an entrepreneur is, is uh, being able to leap um, into new ventures that, that no one else thinks are, are plausible or hasn't dreamed up yet. So uh, I, I started life in that environment of, of uncertainty and tolerance for, for change. Um, grew up on the Oregon coast, um, started out life as a fisherman. Um, then, uh, my, my wife refers to my career as a, a game of 20 questions. I don't know if you remember that game when you were growing up in the car, mm -hmm. are you an animal, vegetable or a mineral? <laughs> and so I started, I started out life as, uh, uh, getting a degree in metal smithing. And so that was my, my mineral phase. And, uh, for 15 years was a, a jeweler. Uh, and then uh, progressed from there into a design firm that uh, inevitably led me to the fashion industry, where that was the cotton portion of my 20-question uh, career. Uh, and I did that for uh, about 25 years. Um, and I think that's where I first touched. Uh, I, I, I created uh, three different brands and three different companies uh, within the, the, the cotton industry. And fashion industry is hungry for new blood constantly uh, and replicates itself at a very high cellular level, um, much more so than the industry I'm in now, which is food. Uh, but but uh, that allowed me to uh, experiment in supply chains for the first time. And I, I think some of what we want to talk about today is um, how do you ground truth the whatever business you're in, how do you ground truth it back to its source? and understand that source and everything that happens uh, between it and what is delivered to a consumer in the end in some form, whether it's a service or a product. Uh, 
And in cotton, I learned what it was like to become a farmer. Um, and by hiring an agronomist, learning about the organic regimes globally, and creating a values-based uh, organic product. And I think that's where you and I first uh, came into contact with each other. Um, but that migrated into a company that today is three times the size it was when I sold it, and the company that was conventional at the time is now gone. So that that taught me a great deal about how an entire supply chain works. And so the the next iteration uh, after I left Cotton was to go into the uh, the animal phase, which is now a seafood company uh, by the name of Fish People, where I really um, springboarded off of my experience in uh, supply chains around the world, building them from scratch, to understanding this industry that I'd, I'd sprung from as a teenager here on the Oregon coast, uh, the American uh, 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 fishing industry. And in this latest incarnation, we're doing exactly what we were doing in cotton, which is connecting um, uh, consumers to a better way of, of fishing and, and extraction um, and revealing it, when, uh, what we call relentless transparency, revealing it, uh, its source uh, down to the captain level, boat level, catch method, uh, so that people can trust what they put in their bodies. And that can only be done by becoming vertical and understanding, again, the entire supply chain and the, and the source from which, um, our, in this case, our fish and protein springs. Um, we refer to it as um, taking farmer's market sort of intimacy to scale nationally, and we do that in over 7,000 stores uh, uh, in the United States. But you, but you uh, have the ability to meet someone and understand where something came from just as you would at a local market. Well, I, I want to talk about a little bit more about relentless transparency, but I want to um, step back uh, one step to kind of the overarching goal of this series of podcasts. Uh, as you know, it's entitled Leadership in the 22nd Century, the idea being that there are a few people out there who are, I think, grasp the bigger trends of, of humanity on Earth as it relates to social systems, communication systems, uh, economic systems, and certainly environmental systems, um, or pieces of it. And, and part of it is art and part of it is science, but you know, there seemed to be a growing cadre of, of people who not only understand that these changes are underway at a pace that on a day-to-day -day basis we don't see it, but cumulatively we experience it definitely. Um, but they're, they're, they're actively, in a sense, being social entrepreneurs using the current systems of uh, business and markets, um, communications, et cetera, to, to shift 
the, the mindsets. And, and so, and I, you know, uh, I, I've known you long enough to know that that's definitely a, a place from which you come. So I'm interested in kind of connecting this, this point that you made uh, early on about your being a child and having a high tolerance for risk and that leading to an ability to, to uh, be an entrepreneur. But what is it that there's lots of entrepreneurs. There seem to be a number of people who are willing to take pretty big risks, but there's a much smaller subset um, that are doing it along the lines that you just described. And I'm interested, what, what where did that come from, from you? What, what was attractive that, because it's almost doubly hard, right? Not only <laughs> do you have to take the risk of starting a new business and putting capital on the line and your reputation on the line and working really hard and maybe failing because nobody's done it before, but now you've got this added you know, layer called it's actually got to be good for people in the planet uh, by a you know, slightly higher, higher order. So, so tell me a little bit about your journey into that being the modus operandi. You. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because we call it mindful business is, and and we say that it it's uh, normal business is like checkers. This is like three dimensional chess. I mean, we must. It, it's almost like that mountain wasn't high enough. Let's find a, a higher one. And so you get bored with, uh, for instance, our industry is. You call someone up and you say, "Ship me some salmon." And they say, "What kind? Caught how and where? I, I don't care. Just ship me some salmon." And give me good price and give me high quality. Boom, boom, boom. Right. And, and that's checkers. That's checkers. Right. And so I've been at this now, you know, I mean, I'm 62 years in, uh, Jeb. So I'm hoping I'm deriving some insights out of, out of uh, my, my wife uh, uh, always points out that I have a very large forehead. And I think that's from bumping into things. Um, and she's always... Uh, She's always nodding her head when I say, well, I'm going to figure it out. She goes, of course you are. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this since you since you wrote me. Um, and I think that there are three principal features, uh, at least in my experience. And, and, you know, the Buddhists have been very helpful for me. Always talk in terms of your own experience. Don't don't proselytize for things that you don't know or have an experience. So. I'm going to couch everything I say, you know, in terms of my own experience and, and hopefully give you some examples. Um, interrupt me if I'm going too long on this. There's three principles. One to me is being literate in the why behind everything we're doing. We're ninjas currently in this, in this century and have been for, well, the, the industrial revolution at least, in, in what and how. You know, we've been raised in our B schools and our, you know, by our mentors that way. Uh, and, and the world's an amazing and somewhat, you know, stressed place because of that. Um, I would hold that we are almost illiterate uh, as a cadre of business people, but also as a society in why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so the 22nd century leader always holds the why for his his team mm -hmm. uh, and starts meetings and phone calls and conversations and 
campaigns and products with compelling whys. Um, so the Buddhists refer to this as right livelihood, and that's really where back in 97, I was challenged by a teacher of mine with right livelihood. So, Duncan, the system that you're in that, that pays your bills, that you know you, you get your salary from, what, where's the energy flow from? Have you gone back to its source? Are you sure um, that it's creating no harm? That started me on the organic cotton path. Um, but it's very much this, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I talk to a lot of my peers, uh, Jeb, and say, so what's your why? And they go, what do you mean what's my why? Uh, return to shareholders, ROI, profits, what, what, what are you talking about? I said, that's a what? That's not a why. And so it's really interesting to see these super smart, driven, mm. risk-tolerant people illiterate in 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 why it sometimes takes hours to get to the bottom of the pile so that's well well don't don't you i mean uh my experience and this isn't just business people but in general you know we 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 call these things the kind of the senior commitments of human being not not any individual but just truly human being look good be right be in control avoid pain and and that's the why. And then there's a biological why, procreation. And then there's kind of a, a, a security myth, I think, associated with being a business person. Um, but, you know, it, it, there are whys. But it's an interesting why that you've chosen. And you use the word Buddhist. And I know that you have a strong practice. Um so maybe 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 describe a little bit more about how that informs your approach to business. So so thank you because that tees up number two of the the, the embodiment principles. Um, and, and I'm hoping I'm answering your question. Drawing from a relationship with the other than human world. So. We call it nature. I, I, I think we're inseparable from nature. I don't think there's humans in nature. Um, but in terms of literacy, being literate empathetically. So do I basically, you know, I think there's two buckets in the world, unfortunately. <clears throat> there's the bucket that is I'm, I'm very concerned about my immediate family. Maybe I extend it to my friends. But it's my family um, that I care about. And it's what drives and motivates my why. And that might be, and, and I think in many ways that shows up very positively. I mean, it's wonderful to care for your family. And maybe the reason you're working so hard when you boil it all down is that you want, you want to travel and you want to make sure your kids get good education. Cool. Um, taken to another bookend, though, I think there's another, there's another bucket, which is I care about my family. I'm responsible, I care about my friends, and I care about the commons and the other. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bertrand Russell said it, I think, in a really beautiful way that my mom shared with me early on, and it was, one must care about a world one will never see. And it's like, the people in the first bucket, that, that is almost inconceivable to them. 
and if you care about the commons as well as your family, I think it drives a, a radically different set of whys. Um, and in my case, it was um, if if it and, and I think uh, you know maybe you went through this too, Jib. In, until my middle thirties, when I said, you know, this is that this life is actually working for me. I'm starting to get a little more comfortable. I've got food in the refrigerator. <laughs> I've got a house. You know, it allowed me to cultivate this empathetic response beyond my immediate family and the worry I had around it just making it in life. And so the next 30 years turned into um, a very deep connection, and I'm going to just be very literate here, uh, a deep connection when I realized that my livelihood was not right. It was a wrong livelihood by visiting cotton fields in the San Joaquin Valley and seeing people in clean suits and having a woman on a bus next to me go into shock um, because we drifted into a, a, a defoliant uh, plume cloud. And I realized here is this beautiful industry that I love that I built this really cool little company around and a lot of people depended on me and it was wrong. It was uh, impacting um, mostly migrant workers that were women and their children in third world countries so that I could wear it so that I could sell and we could wear our t-shirts. And that was just wrong. And so that's where my empathetic response kicked in, and I, I had been handed the dangerous information, right? I could not go back if I was a values-grounded person, if mm -hmm. I was an ethical person, I couldn't go back. And this is, this is one thing when it's like, well, I'm going to go volunteer uh, at a nonprofit. It's another thing when it's like, are you going to walk away from everything you've built or are you going, you know, and, and act on your conscience? Or are you going to stay in the game and try to change it inside the game? Uh, and, and so that's what, I don't know if this is answering your question, but I think this ability to um, step outside oneself in an empathetic response and then do it within the confines of your profession is a, is a, is a, both difficult but very motivating and powerful uh, experience that you never go back from. Once you've once you've done it once or and tasted it, you understand it's the ultimate dimension of of what we call business. Nice. You said there was three. What's the third uh, third principle? So I, I, I want to return to other than human because I just said that the reason I did something was primarily for women's lives. That wasn't the only reason, but so I want to bookmark that. The other one is really, and I think this is how we are, not why we are the way we are. It's becoming what I, what I think of as an agile player, a, like a utility player. By balancing the, the sort of overheated brain activity that we all have in, in business today with, with, uh, again, literacy. Um, maybe it's becoming a literate leader in all these things. Um, literate with your with your heart and gut. So, becoming fluent in all three and balancing your brain 
um, with your heart and gut as, as not just, yeah, 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 that's cool. No, these are principal leadership qualities. Um, and I want to give you an example. How do, how do they show up? So your brain is amazing at rigor and analysis. Uh, I call it the data piece of, of the equation. Your heart is very fluent and literate in emotion and passion. Your gut is what I think of as my intuition and instinct. If you are literate in those, you will be a great leader. I, I'm not. I, I happen to have one of those three I'm a little weaker in, and I really depend on the other two. I, I can be a better leader, and I'm striving to be one right now because the first one, which is the overheated activity of my brain, I have, I have not developed in myself the rigor and analysis and data function of myself as a leader as, as I should have. The other two, I'm, I'm a little more uh, fluent then. Uh, and I, and I, 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 there's a couple quotes that came to me around this. Uh, so if you'll, if you'll uh, allow me. One is, um, the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. And I would say every business I've ever started, started there. Mm. The mm -hmm. other is, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, a teacher of mine, has a quote, and I, I paraphrase him poorly probably, but don't let your mind be a shield. Let the soft, penetrating rain of deep understanding penetrate you. Your mind can be a shield to, to, to deeper understanding of, of the world around you and what you're engaged in, especially in business. So, wow, there's a lot in there. Um, uh, that, that last principle I think is, is quite, interesting and really not emphasized if you th probably think about it in most business leadership development programs today it really is about you know evidence-based uh decision making uh, if anything i think we're moving towards a uh, a paradigm of more brain cognitive you know ai is the is the classic uh, example where we're just going to create learning machines that that take the data yeah and spit out the right path the right decision the right answer and um, so it's it's a really interesting point because it's messy down there in the heart and the gut yeah and and quite frankly it influences the cognitive you know, the evidence that one chooses to use to, um, you know, make decisions. As a consultant, as you know, I mean, I, I, a lot of our work is, is, in, is in developing business cases and, and, and in a sense, if there's a hypothesis that one or more paths are uh, interesting to take, we go and try and disprove or prove through evidence mm. that. And one realizes when you're out on the skinny branches of truly creation, 
it's, it's very difficult to actually create a compelling business case because it hasn't been proven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, as, as uh, uh, a leader, we both know well, Lee Scott once said, you can't benchmark your way to leadership. And, um, and I think uh, it's a really interesting point. Um, you said something that I, is a, I have a big belief in, and I think it, it has pluses and minuses in, in the domain of, let's just call it transformational leadership, which is the, the role that experience plays in, in an awakening or a, an emboldening or impassioning a leader in a business or, or an entrepreneur. And um, it's been my experience, and, and you know, again, speaking directly, my awakening has come through so many years, particularly when I was young, spending times on wild, raging rivers in various parts of the world, uh, exploring, but really living on a day-to-day basis in, in unmediated, not human created, you know, human impacted, but certainly not human created environments. And it, I developed my empathy for wild places and creatures and, and things non-human through a deep immersion over years uh, when I was young. And that has certainly informed uh, my work today. And then you described, you know, you're visiting a cotton field. Uh, I, in your work today it, it, with, with fish people, um, do, you, do you use experiences as a mechanism to enroll uh, suppliers or customers? Or, or like h- how do you see the role of experience playing out in your, in your work as a leader today? You know, I think it goes back to um, really what we were talking about before is that there is an undercurrent, whether we recognize or quantify it. When you're sitting in a meeting room, it's mostly mental activity. You know, it's the brain is in charge, is running, is, is 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 the mediator. Underneath that, this stuff's still going on, right? The the gut and the heart are 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 constantly churning through the same material. Um, one way this is expressed is um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. If if you ignore those two, I think culture really is trying to get at those other two things that are going on simultaneously all the time um, that don't get expressed very literally. I think the the, the, the function I'm playing right now at Fish People is as a cultural steward. So the connecting people, I mean, and the, I don't say this very often, but the, the reason I'm involved at Fish People and wanted to found the company with Kip was because I really care deeply about fish, <laughs> you know, about what we're predating upon deeply. Um, and Kip, really, really felt strongly about communities. And, and Kip is the, your, your co-founder, right? Yeah. Our, our co-flounders. <laughs> of course you are. Playful, playful, but purposeful. Um, 
which are two other things to keep in mind, I think, for 22nd century. Um, one without the other is kind of boring. But I, I go back to your, your premise, which is um, we have an office in Portland, Oregon, 90 miles from the sea. What do we do to create a sense of connection internally with our own in our own culture with the power and mystery and messiness of this hunter gatherer culture i mean we're the last of the hunter gatherers this is this is like this is like a, a feedlot versus deer right fish are wild and right. there's storms and it's a foreign planet and so in terms of experiential sense of connection how can we connect our customer to, to and, and and change this industry in the way that we're trying to change it if we don't connect our own people um and i well maybe maybe just just uh, i uh just for the benefit of our listeners describe how you're trying to change the the industry briefly if you can and then and then i, I then segue back in because i i definitely want to hear how how you know because this is part of the strategy if you will so mm. yeah but how are you trying to change it so <clears throat> i i describe it through uh, a metaphor metaphor is a huge part of my world and business um i call it the big chair phenomenon and we're all sitting at this table for years uh the fishing industry is sat at a table where you've got you know industry sitting there with agencies who are trying to control the industry and the NGOs who are trying to control both. And they're all trying to make it a better world. Uh, at least the agencies and the NGOs are, are seeing themselves as a counterbalance to this voracious, you know, operationally driven, profit driven world of business. And, and they're all sitting at this table, higher in, institutions of higher learning, in our case, some tribal elements are there. And there's a there's a chair at the table, but it's empty. But it's huge, like it's it's three times the size of all these other chairs. And uh, occasionally, someone's head pulls up and goes, "What's that for?" Oh, oh, that one. That's for the consumer. Uh, anyway, back to work. To me, that is the key to this piece: is that we, as a company, are are essentially doing the same work that many NGOs and agencies have done over over the years. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we are doing something radically different, and that is we are going over and sitting in that chair and inviting, you know, the 300 million some odd consumers of seafood to join us in that chair because in the end, we are the alpha predator, right? You've got to enroll the alpha predator if you're ever going to make change. I don't care in what industry, as long as it involves something physical you have got to whoever's doing the consuming has got to be at the table in our industry um there's a, a famous ceo in our industry who says a fish is a fish is a fish lady just enjoy your family meal to us we're saying no the the the, the, the modern consumer especially as millennials age and x geners age people are asking the roots of where their food comes from because it's going in their bodies. A lot of that's driven by health. Health for selfers is what we call them. But what we're trying to do is through connecting them back to their source, we're also informing them at the same time, what are the right fish to eat? What are the wrong fish to eat? When you should eat them, how they should be caught, what you should support, what you shouldn't support. 
and and creating a more um, doing the heavy lifting for them so they don't have to do a lot of research, but they can be uh, uh, lightly literate in in their seafood purchases so that we take pressure off of those fish stocks that shouldn't be predated upon and put it on those that could be. Pretty simple, but mm -hmm. the, the hairy part is in the doing. Um, right. How can you educate if somebody walks by a, a, a package in a store for three seconds? And right. I could, I could, you know, write a, a white paper on that piece of it. But relentless transparency coupled to technology so that people can do it on their phones is really the, the short form of, of how to do that. Right. So, so back to this role of, of experience then. So how, how, where does that fit in? How, how does that, because that, that's always been my, my challenge. I believe strongly that in the case of the environment and the non-human world, it, it takes some immersion it's not it's not something that works very well on a PowerPoint slide. Hence why, as you know, we, we endeavor at, 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 with every engagement, many we can't enroll our clients into doing, but many we have, to taking a trip, literally a day or two out of the office into a place they would not normally go to see people they wouldn't normally see, talk about things they wouldn't normally talk about, and experience, touch, taste, feel, uh, things they wouldn't normally experience. And it, it creates a intervention in the flow, the everyday flow of a business person's existence. And it seems to... It seems to well. It seems to open people up to new, new ideas and new possibilities that maybe have nothing to do with the, what the the content of what you're seeing or experiencing. And so, obviously, I'm I'm quite biased here, but I struggle when I think about how many people live in cities today. They don't have access to nature. They're they spend all their time on the phones. Even business people, the the pace of things driven by technology is so fast. You know, what we used to do in a two-day two meeting, now, you know, we're expected to do in two hours or less. And it's just the compression of time, and it's just the reality of what is. But I just wonder, how are you using experience, if you are? And, and how do you think we, you know, how do we manage that, given that you got three seconds, or you got maybe a third of a second, and uh, and on Walmart, you know, store buyer for in front of us, Walmart store buyer to to capture their attention to make the purchase, much less pay any attention to the radical transparency. So, so I think there's a three level answer to that. One is get your people completely enrolled, right? So, Walmart's a great example of that they used to have to beat people over the head to. To, at job fairs to join the company. And then when you and Lee started the initiative, they had, you know, lines around the block. Give them something for their heart and their gut to, to, to grab a hold of. Um, so that's one. Internally win them over and champion them and, and, and distribute the, the vision uh, and, and the, the heart and gut connection internally. That becomes a generator for the next level, which is your customer. And I think, you know, um, 
that one's tough. The, the toughest, of course, is the consumer themselves because you're in in a, in a, a different relationship with the consumer. But um, taking a, a Walmart, for example, going back to the cotton days, and you know this one, is that when we took the head of soft lines um, to, to eastern Turkey uh, and put her in a cotton field, and she, she was a mother, and she saw other mothers there picking cotton, and her hand became blistered by the 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 the, the, the cotton ball from a conventional field, and then she saw you know bugs and animals and kids running through the organic field. She was forever changed, and so I, I think you you are doing God's work, getting people out into the into into the field. Um, so we're doing that same thing with our customers. Um, we have a very active um, field tour that we take people to our docks. Um, I've taken uh, buyers out on our crabbing boats um, to have them experience the fact that there is a different relationship with the sea that we have a vision for. I think the third one is the most thorny, and that is how do you how do you reach the consumer? And I, I, I would hold one thing. If you can get the two, first two right, the third one almost doesn't have to be aware of it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense, actually. Right? Uh, yeah. it, it's better. If we're really going to do system-wide change, yeah. But if you can get the first two, you've already done worlds of different because that cotton sitting there, they may not know the story behind it or even be patient to listen to the story. But if the person who is the steward of the portal to them mm-hmm. as, a, as mm-hmm. a consumer has been changed and is providing them with, a, with the right product, does, does it matter? Yeah, but is it better than, than it used to be? Absolutely. And just to be clear, you're making a distinction in in the consumer products world between the customer, which could be a retailer or could be a brand, and the end consumer, which is kind of the, the masses out there that are buying whatever that's, that stuff is. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, one parallel would just be the numbers. We have 60 people within our company. We sell to probably 500 buyers who represent you know, 90 million people. Got it. And it, each one becomes logarithmically more difficult because of the numbers of nothing else. Right, right. But you are using experience. Yeah, so I mean, I, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So, so tell me, uh, now let's go back to, to leadership here for a moment, just what you've learned. I mean, you've started so many companies um, and, and, and led many, many companies, very successful. You've started and stopped and, and you've been in different industries. So, you know, what have you learned about leading people in, in a balanced, at least towards balance in this brain, heart, gut triad you've described? Hmm. Wow. That's the elemental question, isn't it? Um, well, one, I think um, we've already spoken about it, but that, that, that um, we're complex human beings. And if we're going to work well together, we should be we should address the whole human being, even in the workplace. Um, so we should we should become literate together or we should uh, foster literacy 
in, um, you know, in our rigor, in our emotion, and in our intuition and instinct. Um, and, and I would say of those, the most important ones, in at least in my experience, Jim, and I think this is across MBAs to the high school dropouts, is, um, is if you have their hearts, uh, if they deeply are passionate, you, they will drive off a cliff for you. They, they will change industries. They will create products never dreamed of. They will, you know, they will move the planet uh, in the right direction. Um, stop and take the time to, um, to win their hearts. Uh, and that is through the why of what you're doing and remind them every day, touchstone the why. Yeah, you know, we, we start every meeting at Fish People. You know, it used to, <laughs> used to freak out our new employees. We started with a, a Vietnamese bell. Um, and that's so we can intentionally arrive in a meeting. Uh, and focus on why we're there as the beginning note to the meetings. And the quality of these meetings goes through the roof. Um, when we are not some residual amount of still on the last phone call we were on or rushing through traffic, just taking that 30 seconds at the beginning of a meeting and connecting back to, one, our breath, and two, the why we're there for each other, and to be fully present is is at the root, I think, of uh, the difference and in, in sort of success of our culture at Fish People. And we now have people who at first were like, oh, my God, if I joined some sort of hippie cult to the point where now if we don't ring the bell, they're like, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 stop, stop. <laughs> Those are not mutually exclusive, uh, Duncan. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but uh, it's not often that you get a strange hippie cult uh, that is as successful as uh, many of your businesses. So uh, that's that's good to know. But uh, so so, do you think what you're doing? So let me see if I if I kind of got the program. So you started Fish People, you and Kip and you're probably your founding cadre to really uh, use a market-based mechanism to drive change uh, in, in the wild fish uh, uh, market uh, and, and down to literal fisheries and whatnot. Um, sheep, and, sheep and wolf's clothing, definitely. Sh- sheep and wolf's clothing. And... Uh, do you have do you have any data on on how long have you been in business and and how if you're just looking strictly at the health of fisheries that at least you're engaged with you know how's it going? Hmm. Oh, so you want some data? <laughs> the mind <laughs> the mind is speaking. Well, my my heart and gut knows uh, you know knows your intention and actually is pretty confident. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that there's positive answers to this, and the community. And I also know that to your point, you talked about Kip. Uh, you know, there is the the old time small fishermen, at least on the Oregon coast. I know it's the same here in California. Is you know it's a dying breed um and i know that that was another uh intention but anyway yeah so how long you've been in business and at this and what what are your results 
Well, five years. Um, I, I refer to us as a toddler. Um, again, I will underscore this is an operationally driven business in the past, not a consumer-driven one. And it's very, very difficult to operate in this particular business unless you're vertical. So uh, just recently, we've merged with our, our docks. So we have landings in the Yukon and uh, in Washington and in Oregon. Um, and um, one of the ways that I would say that we, we measure our impact, um, that there's two levels. One is doing no harm. And I, I believe that that's a very, very important baseline for our company, and that is that we make sure that every uh, life that we take is done so from a, a stock of, 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 in this case, fish or shellfish that is stable um, or increasing. So that's a, that's a do-no-harm sort of answer to your question. I think as we get out of our toddlerhood, sometimes you're just wanting the kid to survive to go to, to kindergarten, and I, I think we've been in that mode. Um, we've been doing it really responsibly. We've been creating a great culture around that. We've been paying living wage jobs at our facilities in a in a in a poverty zone. You know, our coasts are poverty zones, Jim, and uh, I think it's thirty thousand dollars, thirty one thousand dollars for a household of four. It's, it's almost approaching some third world countries. So we're making a difference socially. Um, we're making a difference environmentally at a, at a, in a baseline method. Our Mount Everest is through fishery improvements projects and actual um, moving the industry where it, where it has its, its, its bottlenecks and its um, dysfunctions into functionality through uh, enlisting consumer activists, basically. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the power, I mean, we're buying, we were buying thousands of pounds, now we're buying millions of pounds. We've got more, we've got, our, our, our army is, our fish people army is growing. Mm -hmm. And, and so one of the reasons we, we say often part of our BHAG internally is we want to be the most recognized seafood brand in America, the most recognized and trusted seafood brand in America. Um, why is that? In the old days, it would be for ego and for ROI, you know, and yes, we have egos, and yes, ROI is really important for our investors who put a lot of faith in it. It's more so that we have the lever to pull on community and on habitat uh, and, and the ocean in a different relationship with the sea. We'll have a bigger lever. I, I think so. So my measurement, our measurement, is done through the B Corp movement, um, which is, I think, a pretty good example of some of this embodiment of uh, these three principles I was talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. um, mind equals profits in my mind. So people, planet, profit. Mind is sort of the, the, the steward of profits. Heart is people, I think. And intuition and instinct is really grounded in the planet. And we get measured every year uh, very rigorously. We're a B Corp, one of mm, 1,400 worldwide and growing, um, where they spit out data saying, you know, on... 220 different points of measurement, are we being responsible and living up to our, our beliefs? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, to, to answer that question best, um, 
the B Corp report card is is probably our most complex answer to data on how we're doing. I I think we can do. We, we have only just begun, but I think we know where we are in the landscape. I think part of it is sometimes people just have no compass at all. Our compass is we've done 10% of the work we came here to do. We've got we've got a lot more to do. Um, and and as a postscript to that, one of the principal four objectives we just came out of strategic planning for 2018. One of them was uh, people planet profit, and it's we are raising. We have a really ambitious goal to raise our score in B Corp by everyone in the company having an initiative to raise that score within their field of influence. Mm-hmm. And to sponsor this activity of really social and environmental activism within the company and have everybody take ownership for it, not just the leadership. Nice. Well, uh, on that note, that very positive note, um, I really appreciate your your joining us and um, look forward to to seeing the results as, as this continues. And uh Keep up your your work in the world, and I hope you start another few companies before you're you're done. This may be my last rodeo. I feel like being a monk somewhere on a hilltop after this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Duncan. Thank you again, Jim. Thanks for having me. 